Welcome to the Surge Strength Podcast, powered by Ritter Sports Performance. This podcast is dedicated to helping swim coaches and swimmers learn how to properly implement dry land and strength training programs that result in moving better, reducing injuries, and swimming faster. Let's join your host, Chris Ritter. Welcome back to another edition of the Surge Strength Podcast, everyone. Hope you're doing well. We've got a great episode for you today and uh, just slightly different. So at the end in the Dryland Talk segment, it's actually part two of a conversation that started on our other podcast, the Swim Coaches Base podcast. So if you're not already subscribed to that one, make sure you go on over and subscribe and download the most recent episode, my chat with Nick Winkleman, who is just an amazing world-class strength coach and specifically Nick has written a book called The Language of Coaching and really breaks down how you speak as a coach and the different ways to go about it and the results that really come from that. So the first part of the conversation, the Swim Coaches Base podcast, second part of that conversation is going to be in our Dryland talk segment. And so that got me thinking, it was a great conversation with Nick, number one. So you need to listen to both parts on both podcasts. But I feel like if you boil it down to where you go wrong as a coach. You could kind of say it's either in what you do or how you describe what you're going to do. And so let me break that down a little bit more. So in the what you do, I think that's more the knowledge part. And so specifically, you're listening to this podcast because I presume you care about dryland training on some level. We're trying to help you with that knowledge gap, whether it's the dryland 101 courses that you can enroll for free at surge-strength.com or take it to the next level and become Surge Strength Dryland Certified. So that's filled with knowledge to make sure you're on the right track and how you're programming your dryland, what exercise you're prescribing, making sure you're assessing your athletes, retesting, and making sure you're progressing them. So that's the one bucket in terms of what you're actually doing. Now, you can have the best program in the world. You can follow all the phases that we recommend when you're periodizing it. You you have the taper down perfect. But if when it comes time to describe to your athletes how they're going to squat, if you're trying to engage your athletes in what the actual workout is, that's a whole nother bucket. So you may have the knowledge part down, but if you're still struggling, look at how you're approaching it. And so the lesson from today in the Inside Surge Strength Academy that's pulled right from the SSDC curriculum, it's actually about meeting the athletes at their level. And we break it down into basically four different personality types or approaches that's going to fit for most of your athletes that you run into, right? We can all think of that athlete there that's just going to do anything coach says, right? They're going to be the first ones to do it and they're just going to work super hard at it. And then maybe at the other end of your group, you have athletes that you always feel like each day kind of got to, all right, let's get going. All right, here we go. And it's important as a coach to remember, you need to speak to those athletes differently and even approach them differently, even if they're all doing the same dryland workout. So if you don't have the knowledge part down, that's where you go enroll in a Dryland 101 course or in our Surge Strength Dryland certification. In terms of how you're talking to them, this in particular lesson from the SSDC, I think it's really going to help you. And then we're ending the podcast with the second conversation with Nick there. 
And he really just does a great job in in the second part. We really break down examples that you can use on a regular basis. So not, not just high in the sky theory. The second part of our conversation with Nick really drills down into actual examples and thinking through that. And the more richness that you can give to the language and how you're communicating to your athletes, it's it's just going to stick more and therefore you're going to get better results. So maybe if your knowledge isn't at 100%, maybe if it's at 80%, but if your language and how you're talking to your athletes is down the 20s or 30s, it's not going to be good. So if you can just raise that up a little bit more, that's going to then magnify the results of your program. So hope you guys enjoy this episode. Inside the Surge Strength Academy. Coaching styles is what I'm going to be covering in this lesson. When we talk about meeting the athlete where they're at, it's not just about biological training age, periodizing the program, making sure you're reading the assessments results correctly. It's also how you're actually communicating to each athlete on a regular basis. And that again means if you're working with a group, you're talking to different athletes in different styles. So in breaking this down, and this typically is for, I would say, the younger the athlete, the more applicable. Once athletes reach a certain age of maturity, I feel like this maybe diminishes a little bit, but it's still good to know even if you're just working with an older population. But especially for younger athletes, I think this really lines up. So you want to have, you see there, there's different skill levels, either low or high skills, and then high or low motivation. And then when you meet, these are the four different types that we have. So high skill, high motivation, you want to assign to those athletes. That's the type of coaching style you want to have. And we're going to break each of these down. For high skill, low motivation, you want to have a spark for the athlete. For low skill, high motivation, you want to be educating them. And for low skill, low motivation, you want to aim for the athlete. So how this breaks down is for assign that athlete with high motivation and high skill, you want to almost assign things in the dryland session for them to run because they have high skill, they have motivation, they probably have some leadership qualities. Let them develop that. Let them run the warm-up. Challenge them to be a leader in the group. They don't really need inspiration because they're already highly motivated and they have high skill. Not to say you can't ever coach them, but in the grander scheme, you're almost looking at them as letting them develop their leadership and being able to use their high motivation, high skill to help pull the group along a little bit. So assigning is the coaching style you should look for with athletes that have that high motivation and high skill. For low motivation, but they have high skill, you want to think about spark in terms of how you're communicating with these athletes. So sometimes these are looked at as lazy athletes and they probably experienced some negative coaches in the past because those coaches maybe saw the potential in this athlete and kept riding them because they didn't have a lot of motivation and it never really worked. And so you want to get to their level. You want to be all positive, try to limit the expectations, inspire them, and then let them go. Oftentimes when you stay, take a step back, with athletes like this, and you just give them encouragement and you let them kind of blossom and develop, they will at some point hit that corner and then start to get motivated all on their own. What the worst thing you could probably do is ride that athlete as hard as possible. Again, as coaches, I know this can be so frustrating when you see the potential. I know I've had many athletes in my past 
that in some early in my coaching career, I probably rode them too hard and probably wasn't a part of the solution. And then I would like to think later in the career, I was more part of the solution. But as a coach, when you see that the athlete is really talented, but they're not having that motivation that they need, take a step back a little bit more. Just work on inspiring them. Spark that what if. What if you worked on this? What if you did this? And see what that could lead to with athletes like this. I know this is probably maybe one of the more frustrating athletes to work with, but take a step back, just focus on inspiring them, and think about spark when you're dealing with an athlete like this. The athlete that has high motivation but low skill, you want to educate. So they're probably really fun to coach. It's that hardest worker in the group mentality probably. You want to stick to detailed coaching and take time with them because obviously they're highly motivated. So even though they may not be the best athlete in your group because of the low skill, they have the motivation to improve. And that's always uh, fun for coaches to work with athletes that want to improve. So help them slow down, focus on the details, give them specific things to think about and work on. And because they're already motivated, they're going to go. It's just the skill level is lacking. So if you can have them focus in on, all right, on your squat, make sure you're sitting down like this, hips back, chest up. On your hinge, make sure your knees are soft as you push your hips back. Give them specific details that they can focus on themselves because, again, they're highly motivated. They want to do better. It's just their skill is lagging. So if you can focus them on the details that is going to help close that skill gap, that's going to help them increase their skill. They're going to become even more motivated. So educate is what you want to think about for athletes like this. And lastly, the athletes that have very low motivation and low skill You want to just aim. And what I mean by that is aim their direction just very specifically. And that's it. So you want to be quiet with them. Just instruct them on what to do. You definitely don't want to point them out in front of the group, even if it's for something good. That can almost have a negative impact because the athlete doesn't want the focus on them. They know they're not one of the best athletes in the group and they're not very motivated. They probably don't want to be there. Parents are making them be there or something like that. So just praise them individually, quietly. And then give them space. Just give them directions. All right, hey, great job on that. Make sure you do this and then back away. Make sure you're not riding them too much. And oftentimes, too, these athletes can develop similar to the spark where if you give them some space, you may be able to have their motivation increase. So maybe they're more in the educate style at some point and out of the aim because they might not be able to change their skill level as much as their motivation. And the motivation is going to come on how you're interacting with them as a coach. So aim, give them specific things, praise them individually, not in front of the group, and then let them go. That's what you want to do. So one more time on this matrix here for the different coaching styles, high skill, high motivation, a sign for those athletes. That's how you want to think about that. Give them things to lead the group in. High skill, low motivation, spark. Give them some motivation, let them go. Low skill, high motivation, educate them, give specific details to focus on and low skill, low motivation, aim, give them specific things to look at, praise them individually, and then let them go. So that does it for this lesson on coaching styles and fitting them to your athletes. Dryland Talk. All right, Nick, you got every coach, their ears are perked. They're like, all right, if I've never heard of any of this before, Nick, I'm ready to run through a wall for my athletes. I'm ready to, (laughs) I'm ready to cue them up, connect with them. Let's actually get to like you said, with the cues, how this actually manifests. So you started there with what makes a good cue. Can you go a little bit deeper? And even if people aren't aware, the different types of cues. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, 
this this is almost like trying to teach someone periodization for the very first time. And, and so let, let's just put an asterisk on this, that, that we are going through the Cliff Notes version of this information. That's not to suggest that what we're about to talk about is complex. It's actually not complex at all. It's just a matter of building up a vocabulary mm-hmm. to know what we're talking about. And so a, a few vocabulary words. Uh, when we talk about queuing, we are talking about the short phrase you use right before the person moves. And that definition is very important because just for an example, thinking of dry land training here, you're teaching an athlete how to squat, back squat, let's say for the first time. You're probably not just going to walk up to the squat rack and say, okay, imagine you have lasers coming out of your knee and keep the laser straight ahead. Good luck. End of story. No, that's not, that's not what's going to happen here, okay? So let's, let's be very clear that a cue has some communication cousins, okay? And so I explain this in my book as the coaching communication loop. And think of it like a song on a loop. There's stuff we say before a movement, sometimes during and afterwards. Mm. And so when we're teaching a movement for the first time, we describe it and demonstrate it. That's if you would, that's me explaining the squat, the bar, the setup, so on and so forth, maybe even technical language. But then after I've described it and demonstrated it, I, I typically want to give them that one idea. I like to call it, it's the address and the GPS. Right? I need to give that single intention, that single destination guiding how they move. Uh, then they perform the movement, and then we're probably going to go through some kind of a debrief. How did that feel? What did it look like? Do we want to uh, re, uh, reiterate? The cue, do we want to refine the cue? Do we want to retire the cue, possibly if it didn't work? And so we kind of have this richness of language that encapsulates the learning arena uh, around the movement. What we are going to talk about is the cue. Well, why the cue? Well, it's the, it's the words that turn into their thoughts. It's the words that transform their focus. And as you said, Chris, rightly so, it's actually their focus that determines how they move. You know, language is one step removed. We use language to shape the focus, but it is the focus that actually determines the performance in the moment and and the learning long-term. And so that's why it's the language of coaching. And that's why we're talking about this. So if we we wrap our mind around, it's the 30 seconds before the movement, what should go in there to increase the odds of successful movement performance? The first thing we have to say, and it's a reiteration of a point, we want to keep our cues to one. The second we start multiplying our cues into two, three, or four, one, the athlete doesn't know which one to think about, and you don't know which one they thought about. And so basically, it makes it absolutely impossible to know how your words are working on them or working for them. And so we want to keep it to one. And so there's a number of reasons, but we're going to keep it that simple today. Now, what should that one thing be? Think of it like a zoom lens on a camera, okay? So the zoom lens on a camera means we can zoom all the way in and give a a technical cue on the micro unit of movement. That might mean the motion of a joint or the action of a muscle. Or we can zoom all the way out to the outcome we're trying to achieve. Beat that person in a race. Swim to the other side of the pool as fast as we can. Lift that weight as fast as you can, so on and so forth. And then there's richness in between. Now, conventionally, to describe this continuum of cues, 
there have been two words that have anchored the left side and the right side of the continuum, kind of like politics. But we're not going to be like politics here. We're going to talk about the gray area. And so <laughs> the, the left, so to speak, has been your internal cues, cues that are, as you might have guessed, inside the body and about the body movement itself, like extending your hip is an internal cue. Driving your leg is an internal cue versus on the right, external cues, okay? And external cues are around the outcome. So focusing on, let's say, my interaction with the water, my interaction with the wall, my interaction jumping off the ground or moving the dumbbell, for example. And so we have outside and inside the body, external and internal relatively. And so if we go through the continuum, it goes something like this. If we zoom all the way into the body and talk about elbow, shoulder, or wrist, for example, those are what we refer to as narrow internal cues because they're narrowly focused on one small feature of the body. We can then zoom out just a bit and go into what we call a broad internal cue. And that would be referencing things leg motion, body motion, or arm motion. So now it's more at a segment level. We can then get into a hybrid as you might have guessed it, body and environment. So drive your arm into the water or pull the water back with your hand, referencing both an environmental feature and the body, hence the name hybrid. We can then get into a close external cue. We don't reference the hand or the arm. We simply say, pull the water back, dig through the water, dig through the water as you would dig through sand, right? And excuse any of these that are, are, are biomechanically <laughs> inappropriate for swimming. You can censor them, but you get the point. And then the final piece might be more of what we call a far external cue. And that is think about kicking away from the wall and assuming that the wall is getting farther away from you with every kick, that might be a far external cue or from a reach perspective, reach towards the wall. If you feel that they're coming into the water too early, you might use that cue. And that's even though they can't literally reach and touch the wall mid stroke, if they're in the middle of the pool, that focus though extends the body image, extends the body schema, as we say, reinforcing a long reach. And so we have this full continuum of cues. The question that burns in the minds are, well, do all of those cues have a place or are some better than others? And uh, again, I'm happy to unpack this, but let me just give the, uh, the, the 10 cent tour here. By my estimates, by my estimates, and for background, I have a PhD in this area. I don't tout that because I don't want to be called doctor. I'm called coach, but just I've, I've fortunately or unfortunately, depending on who you ask, I've read all these papers. So there's easily over 200 on this topic, some of which have examined swimming, which all align with what I'm about to say. And they've looked at internal versus external, not with the granularity I've described, which is why I'm trying to move the science and application forward, but they've looked at internal versus external. And easily there's 90% agreeance across these papers. So when we use external cues, it not only commonly results in better performance in the moment, but here's the more important finding. It consistently results in better learning long-term and medium-term than when we use internal cues. And so we're starting to, to realize that when we use internal language, technical language, if you would, great for describing a movement, great for debriefing a movement, great for video analysis. But when it comes to the 30 seconds before they move, we want to protect that time and have our external cues, or excuse me, have our cues either be external or analogy-based. Mm. In both of those cases, they hide the micro in the macro. 
like a Trojan horse, if you would. It allows the implicit side of our being, just the intuition, if you would, of movement to figure out the detail, giving our conscious mind that single address in the GPS, that single intention around how should I interact with the environment, allowing the body to self-organize, which is to say, achieve an optimized coordination to meet that intention. And if you know what they need to biomechanically improve, then you can establish the intention required to achieve that, the body will do the rest. Can you describe, Nick, a little bit more the difference between an analogy and a cue? For sure. Uh, an analogy is a type of cue. And so let's just say that. So cueing in its broadest sense are the phrases you use right before they move. The, the distinction we've made here between an external cue and analogy is an important one to make. So I'm glad you asked that question, Chris. So an external cue is what I would call a literal cue. Mm -hmm. And that is where you are literally talking about reaching towards the wall, pushing away from the wall, reaching into the water, kicking through the water, uh, moving the barbell, the dumbbell, pushing off the ground. You're talking about things that are of the here and now. An analogy still conveys technical information, but it does it by comparing the technical change you want to see with something the person might be familiar with. And this is where I'm not familiar enough with swim technique to give a good analogy there. Chris, I might ask you to do this. So let me give you an analogy from the world I work in, which is more sprinting. And so an analogy we would use for sprinting goes something like this. Let's imagine we have someone who when they sprint, they tend to have a very hunched back and they run very low and they're not kind of naturally rising. If everyone kind of thinks of Usain Bolt, right? He blasts off the line and he slowly, gradually rises. Well, if I was asked everyone to think about what is something that needs to move really, really fast and needs to gradually rise as it speeds up? Anything come to mind for you, Chris? Uh, I think a jet would work pretty well there. I think a jet would work pretty well. And again, with, with limited description, we start to see that, okay, a jet needs to speed up and gradually rise. What do we do when we accelerate? We add speed, we accelerate, and we gradually rise. So a cue that I might use with someone is, hey, as you get off the line, I want you to gradually rise like a jet taking off. Mm -hmm. And so what I've done there is I recognize the technical error, which in this case is posture, and let's say, rise. And I ask myself, what is something that has those features that this person would be familiar with that I could draw a comparison between and insert in that case, a jet taking off. And so an analogy is a comparison between something that we are familiar with that we typically call the source information and something that we are less familiar with or something we're trying to improve, which is the target of that information. I'm trying to take the essence of the rise I see in a jet and map it onto my body from mm -hmm. a sprinting perspective. And here's the beauty. This is embedded in our DNA. We are so good at using analogy and metaphor, comparing one thing to another to convey meaning, using the familiar to teach us about the unfamiliar. And so I, I make the distinction that external cues are literal because analogies tend to be more figurative. They tend to be more visual. It's like the matrix. I ask you to virtually visualize this thing and bring that change into real life, which humans are unbelievably adept at doing. 
So Nick, is, is the analogy going to be more sticky than an external cue then? Let's test it out. Here's three different cues. Imagine you were to work with me day one and we're doing some dry land, 10 meter sprint work, 10 yard sprint work. I'm going to give you three cues to choose from and the audience listening in can ask themselves which one's going to be the most sticky. Okay. Cue number one is rapidly drive your leg back. Cue number two is rapidly drive the ground back. Cue number three is imagine there is a rattlesnake two feet behind you about to sink their teeth into your calf. Beat the bite. Beat the bite. Yeah, I think I'm thinking about that rattlesnake. Okay. okay so, I don't remember the first one, Dick. Yeah, exactly. Neither do I. Uh, so, so the analogies, the analogies tend to be laden Right, a mouse again, a barbecue analogy here, laden, soaked, marinated in emotional salience. The, the emotion of an analogy stands out far more than our, our, our literal external cues or internal cues. But let's be very clear, Chris. Uh, we don't want to be flippant here. We are not for one second suggesting that internal and external language doesn't have a role. Mm-hmm. It most certainly does. In both cases, especially for internal cues, They're very good at describing what to do to create a clear picture intellectually, intellectually, not movement, but intellectually on what to do. But how many times has an athlete said, I know what to do. I just don't know how to do it. Yeah. Right. So everybody can resonate with that. So that tells us, that tells us that our internal language is not enough. It is not, it's necessary, but it's not sufficient. And so external cues and analogies, if you would, are the language that better convey the dynamics of movement without requiring me to think step by step, which ultimately is the key for high performers. So Nick, I want to tie it back to that combine situation where you're saying, God, you know, they did so much better in practice. Now we're here. What happened? And I think as a swim coach, and I'm guilty of this, every other swim coach that's listening is guilty of this. The swimmer comes to you, you know, a few minutes before their race, you give them five different points. They're all very technical. They're all, you know, internal cues, external cues, probably no analogies in there. Then they go up, (laughs) they swim their race and they come back and the coach is like, you did better in practice. So it's, it seems like we need to boil it down to one. And if we can make it an analogy, be the last thing we tell them before they go up to race. Is that tracking? It's tracking. I just add a little bit of depth, not depth, but add a little bit of brightness to what you've said there. And that is do not bring new information into competition. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I use the word new in a very conservative way. If if you know you can introduce a concept in competition that they're familiar with, I'm not going to call that new, even if you've never said it. What I'm saying is you really want to stay away from novel information because (laughs) novel information is going to kickstart that that, that frontal cortex, that thinking part of our brain. Mm. And if that's going to start to, if you would, eclipse the automatic movement that you've worked hard to create in training. And so what, what I'm encouraging people to do is when we talk about mechanizing the cues, and this is literally how I coach. I am ensuring that we are building a thought process that sits alongside the movement process in training. And this is for drills as much as it is whole activity. Are we constantly considering the next best idea? And let's say 
building that idea like a story, like a red thread over time, such that if I'm working with you, Chris, I'm not coming up with brand new cues every time you come in. If we change a cue, it's because we're doing it on purpose. We're building, evolving the mental ritual. This is such an important word for me, right? We're building mental rituals that sit alongside what ultimately are the movement rituals that we call training, such that when we get into competition, it isn't like, okay, now we talk about mental performance. No, no, you've already missed the boat. And so if we're building those mental rituals, the shared, here's the important phrase, shared vocabulary between you and your athlete, Mm -hmm. then we ease, we slick, we expedite our ability to communicate with a low quantity of information in competition. And ultimately, if we see something in competition that we don't like, if we try to change it in that moment, we're probably going to make it worse off than if we say nothing at all. So we use language at a psychological level, positive psychology, motivational, do that till you're blue in the face as much as you feel required, but then recognize that the competition should generate the learnings to drive the next window of training. Too often, we lack patience as a coach. Mm. And in lacking that patience, we inadvertently punish the athlete by asking them to consider too much (laughs) if you would suffocating those automatic movement patterns we generated. Yeah. And Nick, I think maybe my favorite part of the book here as we're wrapping up is by now, if coaches have never heard of this, I'm sure like, again, they're ready to run through a wall. They're ready to get all, all these cues. They're ready to connect with their athlete, make sure they're communicating well. But then it comes to the point of, well, what's a cue or how can I make a cue for this athlete? And I love that you've laid it out in the book, basically walking them through the process of developing their own cues. So it's not just, hey, here's, here's the, the few cues that Nick Winkleman has, has researched and, and figured out, but you lay out the roadmap that every coach can get the book and go through that process and figure out for one athlete, it's probably going to be this and maybe this group is going to connect with this. Can you just kind of summarize that a little bit as we wrap up here and and help people not feel overwhelmed by, I have no creativity to come up with this cue or, you know, I get it, but I'm not sure I can actually execute it. Yeah. Well, I'm putting my hand up. (laughs) I, I was not good on the creative front. I just, my, my, my words were technical. If it wasn't in the biomechanical textbook, Chris, I probably wasn't saying it, okay? I, I was not flashy. I don't consider myself witty. I'm definitely not funny. And anyone who's watched me present can say that firsthand. But I, I'm passionate, I'm dogged, and I'm stubborn. And so because I wanted to get better at this, I had to, I had to tinker. I had to understand a system, a simple system that I could use to mechanize improvement such that now when people see me coach, like, wow, is this like your natural style? I'm like far from it, mm-hmm. which is actually evidence that anybody can do it. So mm-hmm. uh, the, the book, first of all, the book is a story and, and you can, you know, I'd love your, your opinion, but I wrote the book like a story. So from the beginning to the end, my journey is guiding your journey through fundamentally the same information. And so even though it's a, it's a book on a technical concept, I have not written it to be digested in a technical way. That's the first thing I'll say. Mm-hmm. Um, insofar as what you walk away with, there are a number of models, but there are, are four major models that you are going to get that exactly right, allow you to translate this information so simply into your own coaching vocabulary. And so we've, we've gone over a number of them. The first one is the coaching communication loop. 
What are the categories of language we use when we're teaching? And what type of information goes in each one? Anybody can fill it out. Second piece, your continuum of cues. Okay, what's my sushi menu of language I can use categorically when I'm coaching? From there, then you're like, okay, I get that. But how do I come up with these things? How do I come up with external cues or analogies when my mind is blank? The first model you learn is called the 3D cueing model. And basically, that goes through the anatomy of building external cues. And it literally gives you a system so that you can, so to speak, prime the creative pump in coming up with better external cues. And then the final one, it's, it's, a, it's a boring name, the analogy model, but it's not a boring model. It will teach you how to self-generate and, again, prime the creativity pump from an analogy generation perspective. And these are models that I did, not, I did not come up with these scientifically. These models emerged practically mm-hmm. in my mind. They became the way I created a schema to figure out how to become a better coach. Only after I identified them did I go to the science and say, oh, wow, there's actually a structure here that I can build around this to help other people learn the same thing. And the final piece is then this, as you know, Chris, chapter seven in the book is called uh, The Roadmap. And I, ded- I think this is unique. I dedicated an entire chapter to behavior change and habit formation. Mm-hmm. And so quite literally, there is a chapter that takes you from what do I do day one to, so to speak, mastering this information. And it leverages the great book, Atomic Habits by James Clear and Charles Duhigg, The Power of Habit. And it, it basically takes those models and applies it to, to the development of coaching behavior. And it's only in the last three chapters that I give 27 different movement examples applying everything. But the reality is, you know, those are just, those are my language locker. Mm -hmm. That's from my world. Ultimately, the book is for every movement professional alive, beginner to the most elite. Oh, that, that's so awesome. And I know, Nick, you already have uh, another book in the works. So I've heard and I'm excited about where you're going to take this field and go. If there's any indication for swim coaches listening out there, one of the books that you know almost every swim coach has read along with many other different sport coaches is The Talent Code. And you actually had uh, Daniel Coyle write the foreword for your book. So if that's any <laughs> indication for yeah. swim coaches that, hey, maybe this book is important. You should put it on your radar and, and get it right up there with The Talent Code too. Oh, yeah. Thank, thank you very much. No, it's, uh, it's, it's humbling, you know, spent a long time though. Took me about 14 years. So. <laughs> <laughs> well worth it. Nick, give everybody information on where they should go to get the book, to follow yes. you, to, to just get in this language of coaching if they're already inspired to, to make sure they're making these changes as a coach. Yeah, a hundred percent. So uh, the book, the book is available on all Amazon providers as well as humankinetics.com if you want to go straight from the publisher. Uh, for, if you want to learn more, I, I've done quite a bit of free content on my website, thelanguageofcoaching.com and the YouTube channel, Language of Coaching. And so all of my mini courses, I even have a virtual book club. So if you want to test the waters and go a little bit deeper, you can watch that four-part series. And if you want more stream of consciousness, you know, as they say, once you've written a book, you already need to go back and rewrite it. You can go to <laughs> at Nick Winkleman on Amazon and Twitter to get the fresh ideas. That's awesome. Nick, we're going to have to have you back on when you get that second book, if not sooner. Thanks again so much for helping coaches. And I, I think it's just so important. And like you said, it's at 
the cornerstone of what it means to be a great coach is what we've been going over. So thanks so much for what you've brought, not only to this podcast, but just the whole field in general. Thank you for the opportunity, Chris. Have you joined the Surge Strength Academy yet? It's now free to enroll in the Surge Strength Academy and raise your Dryland IQ. Visit surge-strength.com to learn more and enroll today. That's surge-strength.com to enroll in the Surge Strength Academy. The goal of Surge Strength is simple. Build better athletes to generate faster swimmers.